Thanks for listening to this Small Town Theologian special. This bonus content comes from other Reformed pastors and theologians in small towns. You may not recognize their names, churches, or towns, but these faithful men have good things to say for your comfort. God's sovereign grace is active in small towns. May hearing from these men encourage you, and may your life be shaped by what you learn. About 33 miles southeast from Los Angeles is Santa Ana, California. Santa Ana is not really a small town considering it has over 330,000 residents. Although if you compare it to the 3.97 million residents of Los Angeles, maybe we could make an exception. Santa Ana was discovered in 1769 and was used to farm and graze cattle and eventually contain celery fields and raisin vineyards. A man named William Spurgeon, also called Uncle Billy, bought 70 acres of land and established Santa Ana. Uncle Billy was the first mayor. Santa Ana became Orange County's county seat in 1889. There's an airport in Santa Ana. Know its name? John Wayne Airport. It was named in 1979 after John Wayne died. During World War II, the United States Air Force used Santa Ana Army Air Base as a training center. The location of this base contributed to Santa Ana's population growth. Santa Ana also has a zoo. One of my favorite exhibits at Zoo America in Hershey, Pennsylvania, is the ocelots. They are beautiful, mostly nocturnal cats. There are a pair of Brazilian ocelots that live in the ocelot habitat and education center at the Santa Ana Zoo. If you haven't ever seen an ocelot, you should stop by the zoo. Hungry? Swing by Pops Cafe at 112 East 9th Street. It's been a, in business since 1942. It opens at 7.30 a.m. and closes at 1.30 p.m. Though I haven't been there, I'd recommend you pick up two of Pops Breakfast Burritos, one for you, and mail me the other one. God is doing an exciting work in Santa Ana. At the foot of the downtown Orange County Santa Ana Water Tower off the 5 Freeway sits Davis Elementary School. On Sundays at 2 p.m. in the multi-purpose room, Santa Ana Reformed Church is worshiping the triune God. Peter Bell, a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, is planting this confessional Reformed Church under the oversight of Oceanside Reformed Church. This is a place to get the law and gospel. Along with Nick Fulweiler, Peter Bell hosts the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. You can find this podcast on major podcast platforms. The following message is the first one Peter preached at Santa Ana Reformed Church. His exposition comes from Galatians 1, verses 1 through 10. If you know of someone in the Santa Ana era, please, uh, area, please tell them about God's work through Santa Ana Reformed. Now, Peter's message. Have you ever handled a counterfeit bill? 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it may be. Have you used it? Have you taken one? Or have you looked at one? Cornell University's Department of Financial Affairs lines out a five-step process for detecting a counterfeit dollar bill, counterfeit $5 bill, whatever it may be. So there's plenty of sites that I found with way more steps, eight plus steps to find this out. In general, what you do is you feel the texture, you, you see the flatness, if there's maybe a lack of detail, the colored fibers, is it different than a regular dollar bill? The serial number, is it changed at all? Does it look different? The security features. 
There's an entire U.S. Department of Commerce devoted to counterfeit prevention and fraud. And yet, there's a far better way of detecting whether or not a bill is counterfeit. You're intimately familiar with the real bill. You know what it looks like. You spent your life with it. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to dwell on the depths of the true. Paul, in the introduction to his epistle to the church in Galatia, is kind of meditating on this. He describes precisely this approach to knowing and delighting in the gospel, that you might spot the false one. You know the true gospel, you live the true gospel, you can spot the false. And so we'll enjoy the depths of this truth by first noticing how and why Paul wrote the letters. A little bit of background and context. And this is important because Galatians is the first letter that Paul wrote. Basically, everyone agrees upon this. Even though it falls after 1 and 2 Corinthians, that's the first one he wrote. And by all accounts, it's probably the first letter to circulate in all New Testament churches. Every church around. It's circulated sometime in the late 40s, early 50s. It actually predates most of the Gospels. They probably they might have had this letter in front of them before they had Matthew, before they had Mark, before they had Luke, before they had John. So is it not fitting that the very first thing written in the New Testament punctuates the true gospel, shows us what the true gospel is? It underlines it, it highlights it, it bolds it, it italicizes it, everything to tell us this is the gospel. Paul says this is the sum and substance of the church. This is how we live and die. This is what we know. It's also probably kind of a commentary on the book of Acts, especially Acts 9, which is Paul's conversion account after his life as a Pharisee, up until the Jerusalem Council, which is Acts 15, trying to figure out how do Christians, how do Jews relate to each other? Do we need to take on extra stuff in order to enter into the, into the temple? So it's like a commentary on it. So maybe a short overview is helpful. Chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, they capture the true gospel with a little bit of personal narrative. Then chapters 3 and 4, it lays out the contents of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is it full of? And then 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6, provides how you live in light of the gospel. Now we know it. How do we live it? And so you'll notice something similar once we get there. The beginning of chapter 1 of Galatians is actually mirrored in Galatians 6. It's kind of bookending this account. With the center of Galatians 6, or Galatians 3, is a sum and substance of our faith. This is what we believe. So Paul in Galatians 1 is building up to kind of like a little mountain, and then from Galatians 3, it's down from it, from the implications of what the gospel does for us. And so we'll begin with these three points. The first is calling, verses 1 through 5. Paul is not called like other apostles were. And this actually bears weight for the gospel that he brings to Galatia. And point two is counterfeits, verses 6 through 7. This gospel that Paul brings to Galatia and to you is set against its counterfeits. 
And then point three, conviction. Paul ends by issuing kind of a harsh prophetic cause, saying if you add anything to this, may you be accursed. He casts out whatever is not the gospel, and he holds fast to what is the gospel. So I want to leave you with this as we begin. Freedom in the gospel is resting in the gospel alone. So our first point, the calling. Verse 1, and Paul begins this letter different than any other letter that he pens. The first three epistles that have come before this, they're not written beginning like this. So Romans is before this, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians are before this. Though he writes Galatians first. As stated earlier, it's, it's likely this is the first epistle that he wrote. Again, it's, it can kind of be confusing with the English Bible. We see the first three are Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but Galatians is the first one. So he's, he's probably defending his call. Other people around him saying, you're not really an apostle. Christ died and was resurrected before you even became a minister. How can you call yourself an apostle? And he's saying, I was called by the risen Christ. He's not saying, like, you're called by somebody who is not somebody who can call you. He's saying, there's a, there's a distinction here. I'm called by the risen Christ. You were called by the, you can call it pre-risen Christ. And it's also a summary of Paul's own conversion to and call from Christ in Acts 9. Acts 9 gives us this summary of how Paul was called both to Christ and to proclaim Christ. And notice, it's the risen Christ who calls him. The apostles before Paul are called by the pre-risen Christ. And he says, by Christ who was risen. Because the apostles were before Paul were not called by the risen Christ, but the Christ before his resurrection. So he's not setting up two different Christs, but there's a distinctness to my call. Not called differently, just distinctly. And this Jesus who was raised from the dead, also, you can kind of imply, raises Paul from the dead. Christ risen from the dead calls the one to rise him from the dead. And in verse 2, he moves on to speak to his brothers. As I think it's easy for us to kind of read past this. And not see, to his brothers, those are the same ones he persecuted in Acts 8 and Acts 9. And he's saying, now we're brothers. I'm called by the same Christ. You're called by the same Christ. We're now brothers. Which is remarkable. So verse 1 kind of feeds into verse 2. In the verse 3, it's easy, it's easy again, it's, we can kind of read this really fast, and devotionals, whatever it may be, but it's easy to glaze over grace and peace. We can kind of think of it as like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? How, like, what's up? Like, what's up? How's your last week been? But for him, it's much more personal. It's, it's more like, we can call it theological. It's because of what Christ has done in verse 1 that I can say grace and peace to you. Otherwise... There's no grace and peace. It also creates a link to the end of Galatians. Because he begins by saying grace and peace to you. He ends by saying grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he kind of says the same thing on both the fronts and the back. Saying everything in the middle of Galatians is because of what Christ has done. Therefore, 
you have peace. And then verse four, this, this punch of verse four, it's hard not to overstate this, because it's big. What Paul does after describing this call, he then summarizes the substance of the gospel. This is the gospel. But remember, Galatians is the first book written in the New Testaments. So he's probably not pulling from the New Testament. He's pulling from the Old Testament. And like we read from Isaiah 49 to 54, he's probably pulling from Isaiah. And especially Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant song. Because that's, this is what he thinks of the gospel, that Christ has come, risen from the dead. Do you want the simplest description of the gospel? It's in verse 4. The one who gave himself on accounts of our sins. For he chose us out of the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Paul is saying this is precisely what he will defend throughout the book, and this is precisely what saves you. Which you're called from and into. And he later kind of expands on it in 1 Corinthians 15. Kind of gives us a fuller vision or fuller version of what the gospel is. But he's probably pulling from Isaiah 53, this one who was, who was crucified for us, this one who was struck for us, this one who took on our sins and was treated like us. So it was treated like someone who actually did sin, but we didn't. And this present evil age in verse 4, this one's kind of hard to describe, but it's, it's not really chronological. He's not saying there's this present evil age and way in the future, there's this age to come. You can kind of think of it as like two parallel train tracks. There's this present evil age that we're in right now, and there's this age to come, which you can think of like heaven. There are just these two parallel train tracks driving along each other. So he sees actually where we're living right now, there's not just one H. There's actually two. All of us are in one. And he's saying some of us are called into the second one. All of us are in this present evil age. Some of us are called into this age to come, into this heavenly age. So he's saying this, there's this age, this present evil age, that's marked by sin, that's marked by death, that's marked by the curse. Same thing we see in Genesis 3. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden begins the curse. Paul talks about it again in Romans 8. But then, there's this age to come we talked about in verse 5. And there's that second age. It might be slightly better, better rendered at the end of verse 5, as the ages of the ages. It's not just like to the end of the age, it's the ages of the ages. And he's, he's trying to oppose these two things. There's this present evil age, and there's this thing coming. He's asking, are you in that thing coming? If not, you're just in the present evil age. But you, he's saying, you who profess Christ, live in both. You live in this present evil age, and you live in the age to come. Right now. He's saying, you, don't, you who do not profess Christ, you live in one age. You live in this present evil age. And this age to come is not going to be glorious. The age to come will be, will be judgment. One will continue, one will not. 
And this to whom is glory is, is kind of ambiguous. He's probably just saying both Jesus and the Father both be glorified. A little bit ambiguous, probably referring to both God the Father and Jesus. So he praises both. Thank you for doing this from the beginning of the world. Thank you for calling me out of this present evil age. Thank you for taking away my sin and giving me Jesus. And though it's not readily apparent in the English, in the original Greek, verse 5, the very last word is amen. At the end of verse 10, there's a word that's similar to verse 5. It's, it's word for I, but it's back-ended in the Greek, and it's kind of providing us a little bit of emphasis, and it's like this little structure. Saying verse 5 ends with amen, verse 10 ends with a word that sounds like amen. So he's saying treat both of these together. Don't just read, I'm amazed, divorced from the gospel. The gospel undergirds us, is when we stray away, that's what he's talking about in verse 6. So Paul's calling, and your calling in the gospel, that propels Paul, through the Spirit, to call out counterfeit gospels. This is what we're called into, and these are the false things we're not called into. There are things we're slaves of, that enslave us, there's someone we're enslaved to that actually frees us. And so he plays on these two. Brings a point two, a little bit shorter, counterfeits. So in verse six, Paul doesn't just switch gears and says, now I'm mad at you guys for doing something else. He's saying, you guys know verses one through five, that's why I'm calling out. That's why I'm amazed. It's not as if he had forgotten what he just wrote. He's writing in light of verses 1 through 5. You know this, yet you're straying from this. Why would he be amazed, though, if the Galatian church didn't already know? He's probably not coming to convince them. He's coming like, you already know this. Telling us in Christ, you already know this. Why are you going somewhere else? Or if we don't, you should know this. So he's laying the groundwork. The law rightly imposed obligations. So the Ten Commandments, you can think. Imposed obligations that we had to fulfill. Slavery under the law, the other gospel. And slavery under Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it can be kind of easy to import other things we think of as other Gospels. He's, he's probably talking about the law. So there's something that somebody uses to kind of treat like the Gospel, something that we kind of build up ourselves. I, was like, I think I can do it better. I think I got a better thing than the Gospel. In the verse 7, he continues, it's, it's as if he's like, he's, he's asking a rhetorical question. He's kind of bringing something up rhetorical. Saying as if there was anything else. He's like, there's only one Gospel. He's like, as if there's something else, let me talk about it. It's because Paul will describe later, there's, there's this relationship to the law of promise. It's not a relationship of one gospel to another. He's talking about there's either slavery or liberation. There's a thing that's legally binding, which you can't get under. And there's a gospel which liberates you. Then he, he defends the pure gospel. 
for the one that was debated, because Acts 15, which is probably what he's talking about here, is those who impose things to say, this is how you become a Christian. This is what you can do to walk into my temple. And you say, no, no, no. There's one thing and one thing alone. It's, prof it's professing Christ. That is what gives you entrance into the temple. And then those who are, are, are troubling you, it's probably not from the outside, those who are coming in and trying to convince us of something else. It's probably those within who's saying, he's like, I got a better way. Let's, let's add to this. Let's do something else. And though Paul doesn't explicitly state it here, as he will later, this is, this is probably, again, the case. He'll kind of flesh this out in Galatians 3 and 4 of the law of Moses and the law of Christ, which does talk about in Galatians 6. He poses these two against each other. And the former enslaves, and that's all it does. It was supposed to point, but all they're doing is enslaving. The latter frees. There's only two things, enslavement or freedom. And notice, before we move to our last points, those who are wanting to do this are wanting or desiring to turn you from the gospel of Christ. Paul is not lamenting. He's not like telling the Galatians, you guys have already turned. This is a lost cause. He's saying you guys are kind of being persuaded to turn, but you haven't turned yet. Being persuaded, but you haven't turned yet. So in order for them to recognize what's happening to them, they have to know the true gospel. Paul may well say the same thing to you. Don't be tempted to add. Be freed to live. That's the gospel. So Paul moves you with the church of Galatia from recalling in the gospel to recognizing the counterfeit gospel. And lastly, he urges conviction in the gospel. So our last point, conviction. The same, this again, this opposing two things between the other gospel and the gospel of Christ appears again. It's as if he's trying to make a point to us. If you didn't hear it the first time, here's the second time. At the end of verse 8, not that which we have preached to you, which is different than if we or an angel from heaven preaches to you. It seems that Paul is playing on the Damascus Road. So when the Damascus Road experiences, there's this, what he thinks originally is an angel from heaven being Jesus Christ in heaven, proclaiming to him, you are mine, you're going to go preach among the Gentiles. He might be playing on this a little bit, assuming that they know what happened at his conversion. And this was unique with Paul, because every other apostle before Paul is called by the human Jesus, though he's still human, this human pre-resurrection Jesus. And he's probably also referring to prophetic calls, angelic voices, heavenly voices, probably something to do with the patriarchs and the prophets, those who heard from angels, those who saw Jesus before his incarnation in the Old Testament. Paul has already proclaimed the fullness of the gospel. He's saying, go back to the thing I preached to you already, and I'm going to preach to you again. This is the gospel. They know it. You know it. 
saying don't add anything to it. It's just the gospel. And then Paul places an anathema, which is like a cursing statement to anyone who would add to the words of this covenant. So if you do anything to this, may you be cursed. It's similar to what the Lord does in Deuteronomy 4. So you say, if you add anything to the words that I've written down, may you be cursed. And in Revelation 21, Jesus says the same thing. If you add anything to these words, may you be cursed. Paul says the same thing. If you add to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. You live in light of Christ and his fulfillments. You live in the gospel. Then he intensifies his ban on all who would add or proclaim that which is not the gospel by stating it again, as if we didn't get it the first time. He says it again. In verse 9, he says, Neither called, nor the apostle, nor through a man. Then states, he's neither persuaded by man, nor seeks to please man. And he might be doing this again, because he's going to get to Peter in Galatians 2, who he says, did try to please a man. Did try to add. Paul says, don't do that. Don't add. This is the gospel. Peter adds to the gospel, and he expects... This Jewish purity law, which has now ceased because of Christ. All these things we have to add on to to walk into the temple as clean people. It says that's done with Christ. He's made you clean. You need nothing else to walk in. If you were made pure by Christ to enter into the heavenly temple, through the purifying work of Christ on the cross. That's how you enter, is through Christ. And he closed the section by stating that if I please men, I am no longer a slave of Christ. So in this kind of, he's saying actually slavery in this context is good. Slavery under Christ is good. And he's implicitly saying there is slavery that is bad. Slavery in the law is what enslaves. Not being under Christ is actually what is enslaving you. Slaving under Christ actually liberates you. It makes you free. To be a slave of man is to be enslaved by the law. Which man, you, can never fulfill. To be a slave of Christ is to be freed in Christ. For he fulfilled all righteousness. To be firm in the gospel, to know you are called in it, can identify the things that aren't the gospel, and be convinced of the truth of the gospel, doesn't rely on how much you believe it, or how badly you believe it. It relies on that you believe it whether small or big, that should believe the gospel. So Paul, through the Spirit, he's, he's urging you, he's imploring you. He pleads with you. Confess Christ to rest in your confession. Not that your confession saves you, but it's a thing that your confession is placed upon that saves you. 
However, if you're not slaves of Christ, like Paul says he, he is and wants to continue to be, you're still slaves of something. You're a slave of some man-constructed thing, some man-constructed standard, the law, whatever it may be. There is no other gospel. There is no other mediator. There's either taking upon yourself the one who gave himself on account of your sins, to be placed in this coming age, you can think of like heaven, or turning to another gospel, even if there is one. So Paul's ultimate question as we end is who are you under? Are you under the law or are you under Christ? Be free in Christ. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were encouraged by Peter's message and that you learned a little something about Santa Ana. Please subscribe to Small Town Theologian on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your preferred platform so you don't miss future specials and regular shows. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave an honest review to help give the show a boost. And tell a friend about Small Town Theologian. It's accessible all around the world. Till next time. Thank you.